I say there's really a spectrum in how we read the Bible that stretches from literal to literary. And, uh, and everybody moves back and forth on that spectrum when they're reading the text. Um, but basically, literal focuses on facts and literary focuses on meaning. And my belief is we should be a lot more concerned about meaning because if we only are reading for facts, somebody else is giving us meaning. this one out. Yes, we have. Welcome, everybody, to a very exciting episode of the Deconstructionist Podcast. Dude, my 21-year-old self, mm-hmm. that was like the theology police, is like kind of freaking out right now that we have this guy on. Oh, for sure. He's like, what? My 21-year-old self is going, what? How dare you? What? <laughs> and my 36-year-old self is going, shut up. You're an idiot. This guy's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So who do we got here today? We have Brian McLaren. Run BMC. Dude. Now, this is the closest, like, I feel like we're on the um, Phil's Tickle Tour. Yeah, we are. Because it's like all these people who are friends and worked with her. Yes. Because we can't have her on. Right. We really want she She's gone to meet Jesus. Yep. Um, we're collecting her spirit that she's imparted on others. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Piecing it together. So, this one's special, though. Because we got to do this one live. Yeah, we did. In, by the way, in a beautiful, you know, we say this once we get into the interview in a little bit, but we were up at this beautiful retreat community that we actually hung out with Pete Rollins last year a little bit when he was the keynote speaker. And uh, it's Lake Chautauqua, mm. Lakeside Chautauqua, absolutely beautiful, like method, I think Methodist settlement. Yeah. Yep. And we we're in this, doing this interview, we'll, we'll put a couple pictures out. Yeah. In this gorgeous little chapel. Beautiful. At the front, right, like right in front of the communion table. Dude, we were right in front of the altar. Right in front of the altar, <laughs> talking about things that are happening. In in oh man, this this interview, I was so excited to do because I didn't even know we were kind of gonna go in this direction. Even though his book, The Great Spiritual Migration, which we based a lot of our research and questions around, because this is you want to talk about a collection of content. The Great Spiritual Migration looks like a manageable book. <laughs> it is dense. There's a lot of stuff in there. So we're, we're doing this interview based on this book. And, and what you and I have kind of always wanted to do is just a, an, an episode based on the question that we asked Rob Bell at the end of that episode. You asked him, I think. Yeah. What is going on? Yeah. What the heck is going on right now? I feel like he is one of the best people we could have gotten to answer that question too, because, um, and, and this is just my opinion, but Adam and I talk about this all the time. And it's like, what, what, you know, like you said, what is going on right what's now? Going on? Like what, what's happening? Cause I feel like there's this giant movement happening. You totally. can't, you can't necessarily see it, but you can feel it. Would you call it a great spiritual migration? I would <laughs> aptly titled book, <laughs> but like it started, it started with our parents' generation. You know, there's the, the whole Jesus movement that happened back mm-hmm. in the sixties and seventies. And then there's like non-denominational. I mean, do you know yeah. what a shocker that was to people? What oh do you gosh. mean? You can't do that. 
What, you're going to lead this church with a guitar? How dare you? What? No, well, then that Organs. non-denominational just means nothing at all. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't open your mind too much that your brain falls out, you know, like, so yeah, so there's this big, you know, movement to move away from denominationalism, you know, and, and one of Phyllis Tickle's like best books, in my opinion, talks this uh, about this in great deal, um, the great emergence, but like emerging Christianity comes around what, like the eight, late eighties, early nineties. Yep. And Brian McLaren and, you know, guys well, like, like, I think it was more like mid nineties to, to almost late nineties. Yeah. Mid nineties to late nineties. So like, you know, guys like Brian McLaren and, and Tony Jones, Tony Jones, and Phil Tickle, and yeah, like we're at the forefront of this movement. And I think what they were doing at that point was they felt that this time that we're in now was coming. Yep. And they just, they just happened to put a name to it. Yep. And like, even the people who were involved in it are like, yeah, the, the emergent movement is, it's not something you can nail down. You can't go, you know, like this is an emergent church or whatever. No, no. they were just saying, Hey, this thing's coming. Yep. Like, what does this mean for us? What does this look like? And where is it going? Right. And and so here we are, you know, and there are younger voices taking part in it now as well. And I, I think he was like the perfect guy to talk to. Well, Phyllis Tickle called him the next Martin Luther, which, whoa, I mean, I don't, I don't really know exactly what she meant by that, but I know that she saw um, an ability to see things. Yeah. In Brian. And when you hear this conversation, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, mm-hmm. If you care about what's going on in Christianity right now, all over the spectrum, you need to hear this interview and and take some nuggets away from it, take some discussion points away from it. Brian is a guy who is just, uh, he's here to help. Yeah. And he's a good guy. And uh, oh my gosh, is he humble and just in wise and and fun to talk to. And um, no matter what you agree with or disagree with, again, this is not supposed to be an echo chamber. This is supposed to be stimulation of conversation. So we can, we can defrag a little bit more, but tell us a little bit about Brian real quick and then let's roll tape. Yeah. He's a, a Christian thinker, author, and activist. He's a former pastor with a background in literature. Uh, Brian is uh, the author of more than a dozen books, an Auburn senior fellow and a board uh, on the chair, board, a board chair, board chair. I don't board, know. Board chair, a chair, yeah. a chair and a board, a chair and a board of convergence. So like convergence is an organization um, that I think he helped uh, start. Yeah. And, uh, like you can, you can go to his, uh, website and find out more about him and, and, and all the other books that he's written. He's got some other really great stuff out there, but the, the one that we really want to point you towards right now is his latest book, the great spiritual migration. Um, the subtitle is how the world's largest religion is seeking a better way to be Christian. Um, but can't recommend it enough. And, uh, with that, let's get started. Can't wait. Let's get into it. Woo! <laughs> Everybody, Brian freaking McLaren. Here we are at Deconstructionist Podcast, coming to you guys from Lakeside, Chautauqua, at Lakeside United Methodist Church with the guest lecturer of the week. You're probably all familiar with him because of his work over the last couple decades, uh, a voice of the emergent church, the emergent conversation, and now just uh, activist and speaker and author, Dr. Brian McLaren. Thank you for being with us, Brian. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm starting to think that Lakeside might be like Nashville to musicians because we've been here twice now. <laughs> Peter Rollins, Dr. Peter Rollins, 
spoke here the first time, Dr. Peter Dr. Owens. Dr. Peter Owens. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, to start off with, uh, for those of our listeners who, who may not be familiar with your work, um, maybe get, if you could give a little high-level background of um, how you got into the work that you do today and, and kind of what your, what your focus is. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the short version is I was born into a fundamentalist family. And uh, I, by the time I was a teenager, I was pretty sure that wasn't going to work. Uh, <laughs> I jokingly say it was because of uh, sex, facts, and rock and roll. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, I, I remember being uh, a teenager and was being made to feel guilty about everything. And uh, there was no accounting for puberty and in, in a fundamentalist background. Uh, I jokingly say, we never argued about homosexuality because we never mentioned sexuality. Right. It was just unaddressed. And, uh, and then facts, I was really interested in science. And, uh, and back in those days, fundamentalists didn't like rock and roll. Since then, they've really embraced rock and roll oh, by yes. and large. But uh, anyway, I, I was sort of on my way out. I had a very powerful spiritual experience in my teenage years, ended up being involved with the Jesus movement, oh. kind of outside of a fundamentalist context. I didn't realize later that a lot of the Jesus movement was just fundamentalism with rock and roll, but, um, but other parts of it really weren't. And uh, so I ended up, I was never planned to be a pastor. I, I uh, wanted to teach literature. So I was a college English teacher and uh, ended up being part of a little uh, kind of experimental faith community that formed in 1982. And in uh, 1984, I left teaching and became the pastor of that little group. So I was the pastor there for uh, another 20 years. Wow. And, uh, uh, and actually, it was 1986 uh, that, that, ha- that I made that switch. And, um, uh, and I started writing books, uh, partly because my background in higher education meant that I was exposed to a lot of intellectual, philosophical, cultural shifts that were going on. And it just worked out that English departments in the 1970s were really the front line of uh, engaging with new kinds of thought and what we often now call postmodern thought really Mm -hmm. came into the U.S. through uh, English departments Mm -hmm. and literary criticism. And... um, and I think that prepared me in the 70s for what kind of hit on the street more in the 90s, which was the sense that we're in a different world. People are asking different kinds of questions. And whatever Christian faith is, is going to have to take into account a whole new set of questions. And so mm. in, in many ways, my writing career has been me trying to grapple with that set of questions. Yeah. I, and then to finish off that part of the story, I... I left the pastorate in 2006, so 11 years ago, and I've been writing and speaking and uh, kind of using whatever margin I have for some causes that I care about since Yeah, then. yeah, so much of that. Hopefully we can get to some of that too. Good. Um, to kind of dovetail into that a little bit more of your story, we're, you know, we're really enjoying your new book, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration. Oh, good. Um, people really need to pick it up. I think it distills a lot of the things you've been saying yeah. um, up to a point with a new vantage point and you're personal in it. You, you know, you talk about yourself. And one of the things, you know, just dovetailing onto your story that you just told is you talk about your crisis by the Palo Verde tree. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, there's a quote in the book where you said, uh, a succession of thoughts dropped into my mind, blunt and heavy. My faith is a system of beliefs and it's not working. The system is crumbling. I can't save it. I can't save it. It's over. I was wondering if you'd just talk a little bit about that experience and how that experience led you to where you are now. Yes. 
Um, it's funny uh, you say that because, uh, you know, we just came out of a lecture here and there's a young uh, 16-year-old guy who's been at the lecture yesterday and today. Mm -hmm. And as I talk to him, I just think that's me when I was mm -hmm. 16. Uh, so passionate to get everything right mm -hmm. and, uh, and courageous enough to change beliefs. The one way I say it is if you think, you know, fundamentalists hold their beliefs like bricks in a wall. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to chisel out one brick and then replace it with another one, you know, um, because each brick, even though they say there are essentials and non-essentials, everyone is part of this whole structure. And it's very tricky to chisel out a brick and put in another one. And, and I think you reach a point where you chisel out so many bricks that then you think, why am I even doing this? Why am I even building a wall? You know, <laughs> is this even what this thing is about? And uh, so that, um, that was a, I think, the day that I stopped fighting it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, this sort of nagging feeling that uh, I, I entitled a book a few years later, Adventures and Missing the Point, and that I was on a big adventure that wasn't actually the point, and there was no winning. I was playing a game that could not be won. Mm -hmm. uh, I was involved in a project that would, it was doomed to failure. I could never get the perfect system. Uh, and now I realize how naive it was to think I could, but that was really my project. Mm. It, can I create a system that every Bible verse fits into? Mm. That's a tough enough challenge. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, you can do it if you don't mind doing violence to the Bible and ignoring certain parts, but the Bible is such a, you know, includes so many amazing arguments that to try to pretend that those aren't arguments, but are rather elements of a system, that was a doomed project to begin wow. with. But add to that to try to get, all of experience in my little head. You know, I, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that, uh, that some religious people try to get God into their head. Uh, other people try to get their head into God. <laughs> but <laughs> if you try to get God into your head, it will result in insanity. <laughs> I love, love that. Love Chesterton. Yeah. Oh, man. So to talk, you talk about deconstruction in your work and the idea that God wants us to ask questions and actually wants us to be honest but you talk about the hermeneutic of suspicion about your hermeneutic of suspicion. Yes. And I think what you're trying to say here is that uh, you don't have to throw everything out. And <clears throat> you can also find yourself, while kind of deconstructing, find yourself at, again, what you would call that brick wall all over again. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a good way to say it. You know, if I could, you know, uh, Paul Ricoeur famously talked about naivete, mm -hmm. loss of naivete, and second naivete. Um, in one of my books, I talk about uh, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Mm. Um, but one way to describe it is you start by trying to understand a system that you inherited and grasp all of its truth. Mm -hmm. And then you find out that it's not all true. So then you go through this suspicion. And, and your goal there is to get rid of everything that's not true. And the great fear for a young fundamentalist like myself is that that will be like peeling an onion. You'll peel every layer and you'll have nothing except tears. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's good. And, uh, but I, I think you reach a point where it's a, a bizarre paradox, a, a bizarre shift happens. And instead of just trying to have x-ray vision and see through everything and, and find the falsity in everything, you then start to try to find the truth in everything yeah. um, or find the good motive in everything. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and, or you try to understand something that now you think is false and you look at that statement where it arose as part of an ongoing conversation and you realize, I really think that's false, but it was way truer than the falsity that it replaced, you know? <laughs> it was a step up from an even worse falsehood, you know? <laughs> Uh, and so this this shift to a place where you you I suppose you replace a a hermeneutic of of suspicion with what some people have called an epistemology of love that you say if I'm going to get any truth from this it requires that I actually try to understand it. Mm, that's so good. It takes humility to continue in that. Um, somebody else we had the show on the show once talked about doubting your doubts even. Yeah, and and when that quote about a suspicion about your suspicion is saying exactly what that other uh, person was saying, and and that can lead to, um, I think you know what Richard Rohr calls the contemplative mind, where you're not so quick to have to say this is true, false, good, bad, right, wrong, you know, but you say, I I want to understand this. I, I was with uh, I. I uh, did an interview yesterday. I interviewed a fellow for a, a leadership course that I'm developing who's a mentor. And I, I asked, uh, he, he's 75. He's been, his whole career, his adult life has been mentoring leaders. He, he's like, kind of like a spiritual director or coach for leaders. And one of the finest people I know. Mm. And I said, well, so where do you start? And he says, I always start with a little conversation before I meet somebody where I say, I wonder who this person is. Wow. Oh. And I, you just realize he's creating space. And it doesn't matter if the person reveals himself as angry and bitter and ignorant. Or what. It's like, well, I just want to know who you are. And when you come into my presence, there's going to be no judgment because I want to understand you. You know, I, I don't know if that so communicates, good. but it, I think does. that's this yeah. place where... I hope we all can aspire to be. It reminds me of the, one of the early chapters in uh, Bob Goff's book mm. where he talks about how I used to try to change people. Yeah. Now I just want to be with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort a of kind of presence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a presence. Yeah. In, um, <clears throat> in the introduction of your new book, you're kind of addressing some of these people that are experiencing this uh, disorientation, this confusion. Yeah. Um, you talk about over many years, uh, a lot of us have done a lot of demolition uh, eventually, the time comes when we must move beyond demolition and focus instead on construction. Now, we see this tension a lot with the people that we encounter yeah. doing this project. You know, yeah. we're called the Deconstructionist yes. Podcast, the D's in brackets, because we really want to focus on the construction yes. aspect of this. But these, these seem to be, to a lot of people, phases that they encounter. And what we find a lot of times is when we talk about this in phases, you know, hey, are you in deconstruction? Are you in reconstruction? Are you just in construction? People are getting almost obsessed with what phase am I in? Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Are these phases or is it just a momentum that's constantly taking you forward and always requires new evaluation, new demolition, new construction? Yeah. Like, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, first, can I say, I'm really glad you're asking that question because yeah. it's really worthwhile question. Thank you. Um, so, I, I mentioned I wrote this book called Naked Spirituality, where I talk about these four phases that are roughly similar. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my simplicity and complexity are like that construction, yeah. And then perplexity is deconstruction, and then the harmony is reconstruction, right? Uh -huh. So, um, and the way I try to say it is, a lot of people are born. I don't think we're born in simplicity. I think we're born in something before simplicity. It's mm. pure naivete, right? Pre-rational. But, but our first phase in 
social life is, is a phase of, of simplicity. Uh, uh, and a lot of people stay there their whole lives. Mm. And I, you can't judge those people. They might not have the capacity to go beyond there. They might not have the necessity to go beyond there. There's a loving version of a person in simplicity. Oh, That's, gosh, yeah. Uh, so a lot of people stay there. Then a whole lot of people move into complexity and stay there. They never get beyond that. They never get to the deconstruction phase. That's where they live. Um, what I think part of the postmodern condition is that a whole lot of us in a lot of settings get to that perplexity deconstruction stage at, at an earlier and earlier age. Yeah. Um, and, and there are many, many reasons for this. I think my friend Richard Rohr says that great love and great pain um, bring us to that stage. I would also say a great education and great travel, a great amount of travel, because when you travel a lot, you're exposed to different cultures, especially not just tourist travel, but kind of immersive travel. But all those things can get us to that deconstruction stage sooner. And then we get to what I call that harmony stage where we're, we are able to start to reassemble some coherence. But here's the thing. If you live long enough after that, let's say you get to that stage by the time, you know, I think I reached that in my 30s. I think my 30s were trying to move. Uh, my, I spent my 30s sliding deeper into perplexity. Yeah. And I maybe began to move into some of that harmony stage, my, yeah. <laughs> my, my late 30s. But that becomes your new simplicity. And it becomes easy. And then what happens is you face new levels of complexity. And then a new, but here's the thing. Your first time, it's a little bit like sex. You know, your first time, it's all new, Right. Second time you come to simplicity, you think, oh, I've been here before. Mm -hmm. And your second time you come to complexity, oh, yeah, I've been here before. Third time you come to perplexity, it's still terrifying, but a little less terrifying. I right? gotcha. And, and, but then you maybe do that in your 40s, right? And then in your 50s, it's kind of easier, you know? And, and I, think if, I think at younger and younger ages, more and more of us are going to say, this is just life, you know, mm. and we won't be so shocked by it. Yeah. And that's where, uh, you know, I, I wonder what happens if you have what I'm calling people in harmony or whatever you want to call people who are there. If they have children, there's a good chance they're, if they're good parents and they're part of a community where this works, by the time their children come of age, they're in, they're, that's where they are, right? They've, parents can't raise their children beyond where they are. It's so true. And so at any rate, I, I, that's why I think that's such a, a great question. Um, and, and maybe another way to say it is where that, that sort of partitioning becomes especially problematic yeah. is when people use it as a social stratification. Oh, oh exactly. you're still in that yes. stage. You know? <laughs> uh, and th that's just always a sign that they haven't really... Had, they have no experience in that harmony stage yet because right, right. at that point, part of being in that stage is being able to say, there's nothing wrong with people in, in an earlier stage. That's where they are. They have their work to do. Absolutely. You know? right. So I think that's part of this, how this process is. That's beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I had a different question, but now you made me think of something else. So, 
So uh, one of the things you talk about in your book, and I think this kind of leads into that, um, and, and this is a question that we get a lot on the podcast, and that is, so when you start to reach these later stages, and as a parent, that pre- presents a kind of a unique challenge. How do you, how do I continue to teach these these stories to my child, knowing that they're metaphor, probably metaphorical, and and some of these things probably aren't true. So within the context of raising a, a home, raising children, how do you approach that? Yeah, I I wish I were asking that question, you know, when my kids were little, because now my kids are grown and and they have they have kids of their own, and um. And my kids are better parents than I was, you know, and I, in some ways I'm sad about that. I wish I'd been better. Uh, one of my friends said, when you raise your kids, when they turn 18, you look at them and you say, I did my best, but you deserved a lot better. Mm. <laughs> and that's very much how I feel. Mm. Um, but it's very gratifying to see them be farther along in this process with their kids. But one of the great problems right now is that we have almost no faith communities that are centered in stage four that have room for people in stages one, two, and three. Yeah. So good. And what that means is that it's very hard to find faith communities for our children to be raised in. You know, it, it's just, I think it'll be different in five years. I think it'll be different in 20 years, but that's where we are right now. It's still yeah. a problem. Yeah. What even happens for a lot of churches where we have young adults who are grappling with these issues and then they have kids and then the kids go to Sunday school where they use the same crappy curriculum that is just going, it's flashier, it's got video, it's, you know, all the rest. And, and it's giving them stage one version of Christianity. Mm. So here's where I think, you know, we've got the work of people like William Fowler and uh, my personal favorite, uh, William Perry, who wrote about stages of adolescent intellectual development and moral development. Uh, we've got a lot of human developmentalists who can help us here. And I think what, and, and I'm glad to say there are Christian educators with PhDs in education who are beginning to ask what it means to do solid moral and Christian education for children. You might wish this were done a hundred years ago, but it wasn't. So mm-hmm. now's the next best time. And that's going to be, it's going to be a whole new challenge. Um, it will further the disruption because Here's what's been a problem for my kids, even to the degree, you know, I wish I'd been farther along in what I taught them. But uh, my two older kids have had a terrible time finding a church mm. um, because they go in and they wouldn't use this terminology. Maybe they would, but, you know, if they're using my sort of four stages, they would just say, all these churches are stage one and stage two churches. And that's not where we are anymore. And it's not where we want our kids to be. Mm. So. But, you know, can I just say uh, one other thing? You know, kids are way smarter and more sophisticated than we realize. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah. And and the problem is relatively few adults know how to create space for kids to go to their deepest selves Mm. and to respond with their full capacities. Uh, And very often when kids respond to their full capacities, they can't do it verbally. It's one of the reasons why art is so important with children. Interesting. And uh, I have a friend who's a child psychologist and he loves to use play therapy because he understands children very often are, what they're doing in play is phenomenally profound. Wow. And adults aren't smart enough to understand it because they <laughs> only know how to interpret words. Right. right? Yeah. So uh, 
I don't know if you've ever heard of a curriculum called Godly Play. The Catholic version of it is Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. But this is an approach to the moral and spiritual development of children that's based in that kind of awareness of the, a high regard for the capacities of kids. That's fascinating. I think so many of us that have kids and that are in you know, either leadership capacities or are very interested in the conversation on some level, um, we're so insecure now because we're in this, in this place of you know, uh, disorientation or yes. deconstruction or whatever, where what our parents handed us, um, we're less and less comfortable with how it's phrased and how yeah. it's, and so then it's hard to, to pass it on to yeah. the kids because you're like, oh, what am I you know, doing? But I think what you're saying is, is, is brilliant. Just can creating, I, can, yeah, please. Can I give you two quick yeah, uh, examples? Yeah, so I think it's important. I, 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 in a book I wrote called We Make the Road by Walking, I tell this story of a woman whose daughter goes to Sunday school. I forgot the age of her daughter, but a young uh, child goes to Sunday school. And here's the story of Elijah and the fiery chariot. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she comes home and says to her mom, was that story real or make-believe? And her mom doesn't know what to say. Um, to say it's, it's real, she doesn't believe it's true, like historically true. Okay. To say it's make-believe feels like it dismisses it. And so mm. she was brilliant. She said to her daughter, some stories are real, and some stories are make-believe, and some stories are a mixture of the two. What do you think? Oh. And in doing that, she invited her daughter into the interpretive community. Well, so I hear this story, and I thought, you know, I haven't looked at that story of, of Elijah and the chariots of fire in ages, and I went back and read it. It is a fascinating story. It, it's so similar to a lot of Buddhist stories because it's a story of uh, a neophyte coming of age through ordeals. Mm -hmm. So Elijah is the old mentor, right. and he says, I'm, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to be gone soon. You keep your eyes on me, Elisha, my mentoree. You, know, you keep your eyes on me. If you're watching me when I go, then you will receive a double portion of my mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. And so then you realize this episode of the chariot of fire coming down and taking him away is a distraction. The point is not to get distracted by the chariot of fire, but to keep your eyes on Elijah, right? So isn't it ironic? We have debates about whether it really happened or not, which proves our ability to be distracted. Sure. But here's the thing. As soon as I read this, I thought, okay, in an ancient culture, the, why do you tell a story like that? Mm -hmm. You tell a story like that because you realize that Martin Luther King lives among us. Mm. And he dies. And there's a blaze of glory. And we then talk about the chariot. And, and we stop looking at what Martin Luther King said and did and meant. And we look at the statue and the day that we erected Absolutely. in his honor. Absolutely. And I thought, this story is so profound. And you realize that the person who takes it literally misses that profound meaning. And the person who says, oh, it's not true, and dismisses it, misses that meaning. I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful stories. After I went back from that five-year-old girl or whatever's question, you realize something more is going on. Well, that, you know, that actually brings us to a point in your book. And, um, you know, you're talking about spiritual migration. You're talking about all these different uh, things that are happening uh, in the Bible being one of them. And there seems to be... Um, a resurgence right now of a lot of people. Um, we've experienced it with the podcast, especially that 
they don't want to throw the Bible out. Yeah. They want to learn how to read it better. Exactly. And uh, almost hearkening back to um, Jewish interpretation yeah. and, and, and the ways that, um, you know, first century and, and even before that um, were comfortable with the layers of ambiguity and symbolism and, and uh, layers of meaning right. inherent in the ways yes. that they wrote, where we're just familiar with um, propositional meaning, yes. post-enlightenment, rationalism, yes. you know, one single thread, and you have to follow it all the way. You know, we, people are really into guys like N.T. Wright, yes. and, you know, like the Bible Project is this, like, you know, seemingly conservative movement, but you have to actually listen to them. They're, they're trying to take you down into layer and layer and layer and layer and show you how big it is, which almost looks more like an invitation, yes. doesn't it, than, yes. than just a, hey, here's what it means, just memorize it. Exactly right. And so um, the Bible is an important part of your book, and you talk about some of these different ways to engage it, because that's a big issue for a lot of the people that listen to this podcast. Could you just touch on, I want them to get the book and, and really wrestle with yeah. themselves. There's great discussion questions. Um, if you're in a community, um, there's some really great resources in this book to engage your community together, because I think that's important to you. Yeah. But could you just touch a little bit on the Bible and um, some of the ways you look at it that you think are helpful? So I should tell you that one of the, you know, when you write a book, there are parts you feel like, oh, that was pretty good. And the parts you're like, oh, I, I nailed it there. <laughs> and probably one of the parts of the book that I felt the best about, not that I nailed it, but uh, I, I pre- developed this little chart. And every chart oversimplifies. Right. But this chart, at least is less oversimplified than what most of us inherit, which is that there are two ways to read the Bible, our way and the wrong way. And um, so it's a, a chart, that, a little matrix of six ways to read the Bible. And, uh, and the first thing it does is instead of putting people in two categories of literal and, or, I'm sorry, of, of conservative and liberal, right. I say there's really a spectrum in how we read the Bible mm-hmm. that stretches from literal to literary. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and everybody moves back and forth on that spectrum when they're reading the text. Um, but basically, literal focuses on facts and literary focuses on meaning. Mm-hmm. And my belief is we should be a lot more concerned about meaning. Because if we only are reading for facts, right. somebody else is giving us meaning. Mm. Um, and, and this is the great problem. They tell you, oh, read the Bible for facts. And then you don't realize that they're selling you a framework of meaning snuck in under the biblical Abs- facts. Absolutely, yep. And, um, and then, so if that's the horizontal a- uh, axis, then there's a vertical axis uh, where I talk about an innocent, critical, and post-critical or integral sort of ways of engaging with the text. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what I'm really advocating for is to use the terms we were using before of uh, sort of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction, that we aren't afraid of that middle stage but we don't get stuck in it because again, in some ways the middle stage is looking for bad facts and bad meaning. That's mm-hmm. a good idea. Yeah, get rid idea. of bad facts yeah. and bad meaning. Yeah. Uh, scrutinize, be skeptical, you know, develop a good, uh, I'm trying to write, find the right term here. The right, uh, be sure to have a good fecal meter for bad facts <laughs> and back, bad meaning. Fecal meter. Love it. <laughs> that was just coined. Coined. Just now. Right here. <laughs> um, but, uh, but then where do we go beyond that? And, you know, here's one of the interesting things. You know, this word postmodern and deconstruction that you guys are working with has so many meanings, right? Oh, yes. And it's such yep. a contested term. Yes. But there's a certain sense that uh, that 
we wanted to get rid of unhealthy facts, you know, so-called facts. We might call it false, fake news or whatever. Uh, and harmful meanings, mm -hmm. right? And we're better off having done that. But if we've got a vacuum, and then here's this realization, where does meaning come from? And we are involved in the making of meaning. Mm. And this sense that we take responsibility for the meaning that we make. Uh, I have uh, four children. One of my children is a cancer survivor. Um, he was six and a half when he was diagnosed. And he was in really bad shape for a few months. Uh, uh, and, uh, you, you know, you, as a parent, you don't know if your kid's going to live or, or die. And I remember the sermon I preached in the middle of that. I called it Making Meaning in the madness. And somebody said, you should say finding meaning because God puts the meaning there. And I said, look, I don't know if God puts the meaning there, but I can tell you what it feels like right now. I'm choosing and I'm involved in the making of that meaning. Mm. And I hope God is with me in it, but it's not being handed to me on mm -hmm. a platter, you know? Yep. And I think that's part of, that's part of what it means to be a human being. So, mm. uh, if one other thing that yeah. might be useful in the Bible, this, this little uh, sort of historical framework helped me. Um, you can go back in human history and you could say that truth resides in weapons. <laughs> sure. This is what, this is what, uh, is it Pilate who says, what is truth? Or is it, I forgot. Yeah, who, it was Pilate. Pilate. Yeah. When he says, what is truth? What he's basically saying is, look, I work for the Romans. We have weapons. <laughs> right. <laughs> weapons are truth. Right. Might makes right. Yeah. And then we go through an evolutionary development where we say, no, truth doesn't reside in weapons. Truth resides in legitimate authority figures and hierarchies. Yep. And in, uh, it so happens that for Americans, our country is born at the end of that era where we start saying, no, truth doesn't reside in divine right of kings. We say truth resides in documents. And so we invent the Constitution to replace the authority of hierarchies, hierarchical institutions. Yep. Well, if you want to think of it in this way, we Protestants did exactly the same thing with the Bible. Totally. We said, you Catholics are sticking with a king called the Pope. We're going to the Constitution called the Bible. Mm -hmm. The paper Pope. And certainly, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. And, and I think part of what we're realizing now is that it was understandable that we would do that. Sure. And it, in some ways, it was very clever that we would do that. But the Bible is not a great constitution. It's just not what it is. And so right. uh, now we're having to say, we're having to cope with that. And uh, we're going through a similar process now. You know, all of our debates about the Supreme Court and strict constitutionalists, you know, we're, it's fascinating to watch how it is fascinating. we're growing and struggling with our, our context. If God was on I definitely want to stick with this with this line of thinking here um, because it kind of leads into my next question, which is that um, I'm, I'm obsessed with charts and graphs and studies and things like that. I'm, I'm the guy who gets on Pew's website and I'm just digging through, you know. So one of the things that I've, I've been fascinated with, just by virtue of the fact that my dad is has been a, uh, a Lutheran minister for over 30 years, yeah. and um, being part of that denominational structure, he's he's witnessing a very interesting movement within 
um, kind of that those traditional denominations, which is that um, the ones that aren't kind of uh, adapting and evolving into kind of more of the modern worship style and that sort of thing are seeing their attendance just plummet. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things my dad and I constantly talk about is, you know, what is it that the current generation is looking for? Yeah. Uh, what, what do they need that we're obviously not providing? And the studies reflect, you know, that, uh, that specifically the millennial generation uh, does not seem to care about denominations. Um, and they are attending organized church uh, far less frequently. But the interesting thing that I found on the flip side is that the same studies show that a very high percentage of millennials still believe in a higher power, still believe in God. So it's pretty clear there's still some spiritual curiosity there. There's some hunger there. Absolutely. So um, from your perspective, just what is it, you know, as a person who, from a very interesting vantage point, like you said, you went through fundamentalism, the Jesus movement, uh, you're one of the pioneers for the emergent church movement. As it stands now, as you sit here today, what is it that we could be doing better? What is it that we should be giving this generation that they're not currently getting? Oh my goodness, what a what a uh, overwhelming uh, question! So, will this podcast last nine hours? Is that, is that right? <laughs> we can make it a two parter. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the first thing I should say is obviously I have access to the millennial generation primarily through my children. Mm. Um, and I hope I'm one of those parents. You know, you reach a point as a parent where you become more concerned about your children and grandchildren's success than your own. I think one of the ways that, you know, some people, what do they say? They become elders and other people just become old. Um, and I think, <laughs> I've heard that before. I yep. think you just become old when you keep caring about your success. Mm. But to be an elder is to care more about your children and grandchildren's success in their world. And that's why I think as I get older, I should be more and more interested in their world than I am in mine, right? Wow. Uh, in, the, in sort of the world that I grew up in. But uh, and my honest answer is that, and I don't want to say this in a way that's dismissive, because we're all in the middle of this and we're doing the best we can. Yeah. But I, I am for every effort to improve the church. I'm for every effort, and I think we should do everything we can. At the same time we do those things, we should be in the back of our minds thinking we're probably not even close to what we need to grapple with. Mm. And that's why I'm sort of an advocate of doing in church what I think we have to do in the energy sector. We have to keep as sad as it is, we have to keep the coal plants going and we have to keep the gas pumps flowing Mm -hmm. while we develop solar, wind, and other forms of renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And while we're trying to reduce our dependence on uh, any kind of energy at all, we've got to do those things simultaneously. And they are contradictory things, right? Mm -hmm. To keep the, the gas pumps flowing is against what you need to do to get the other going. So we have, to, we have to recognize the, that there's a paradox and an irrationality to what we're doing that we should not be comfortable with. So, so I guess part of what I want to say is mm. don't be so naive to think that your little incremental solutions are going to work, but don't disparage them either, you know, and, and live with that tension. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So then you think, well, what's the, you know, because what we have to say is God hasten the day when I am not using fossil fuels in any way. Right. Hasten the day when my home is powered by 
renewable energy, when my transportation is powered, when my, you know, hasten that day, right? We live in that tension. Um, <clears throat> so here's the way I would say it. If, uh, I would say we've got to look at millennials and the younger generations than millennials. And we have to say, what is the form of Christian faith that they need? Because here's the tragic truth. I'm ashamed to say this, but there are millions of baby boom churchgoers out there who want millennials in their churches as fuel. They want to consume them as fuel You're right. to keep the old thing going. You're 100% mm -hmm. right. And it's, it's dehumanizing. It's awful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's awful. How can we get millennials in How the church? How do we get more young people in our church? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh gosh, you know, but then if we were to say, if, if we believe that Jesus actually has this message of the kingdom or reign of God that has to be translated in today's world, but that is that we actually think he was right about that message and that that message has enormous transformative power. And we might even go farther to say, and we actually believe in some way the spirit of Jesus is a, is a reality that can, however it happens, it can rewire our brains and possess our bodies, so to speak, so that we are brought up in that story. Mm. I, you, you have a thousand different ways you can explain that, and I don't want to argue about which one we use. But if that's going to work for millennials, then where would they start? What would it look like? Mm. And that is going to be discontinuous mm -hmm. with, in many cases with what we're doing. Now, there might be interesting carryovers. So like we're here in this building this building could really be useful in that, uh, in that process. Uh, the, the pastor sitting here, no offense to the pastor, but I'm pretty sure hey, that, this, that these pews arranged in straight lines and rows will not be useful for that because there's something in education, you call it a null curriculum. It's what is taught before anyone says anything. And what's taught in this setting is that find your place in a straight line and face the front where the action is, Right. Um, a friend of mine says, architecture always wins. So that's, but guess what? So people, then people say, oh, well, throw out our churches. Listen, this is valuable real estate. Absolutely. It's got a roof. It's got air conditioning. It's got really nice ceiling fans. <laughs> this is great. This could be repurposed for mm -hmm. what is needed in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's to me the process that we have to go through, right? Um, people say, oh, get rid of the denominations. Listen, I'm deeply involved with our denominations. I see how we're in denominational silos. I see the harm that's doing to the larger cause. I see the ways that so much energy is sucked into denominational maintenance. Mm. And by the way, non-denominational mm. evangelicals have a denomination. It's just a stealth denomination, which often is even harder to change because it's invisible and unwritten, and it works through other kinds of so power, good. right? That is so right <laughs> but on. So much of our energy gets sucked into that that it's not invested in the real causes of our mission, right? So I'm, I see this problems, but here's the thing. People need pensions in today's world. People need health insurance. Yep. Uh, it's not a bad thing to uh, have a bank that you can go to that will give you a loan if you need to do some things, right? That's nice. So, so this is where we need this both end mentality. Sorry to ramble on. No, no it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> This, this goes right into, we're so in sync, John. I love it. This goes right into a question. So uh, one of the things, obviously, that we're super curious about on a macro level, and this is something you talk about a lot, but John and I just always, we're just looking at each other, you know, before we record, after we record, if we're out having beers, we're hanging out, we're just talking about, like, what is going on right now? There's obviously something going on 
right now. There's just, you can feel it, you can see it, you can, you can notice it in, in uh, conspicuous ways, and then there's, you know, in, uh, more of a hidden aspect to it. And it, looking back, you know, with your work and like Phyllis Tickle's work, commenting on um, what happens every 500 years and you know, all that kind of stuff, I, I want to talk about that. And I want to tease out one thing that almost goes into the question that you, you guys were just talking about um, with, with all of that. When I look back to uh, when Jesus hit the scene, and then 500 years after that, and then 500 years after that, and 500 years after that. There's this thread that I just noticed, just reading your book, actually, just stuck out to me for the first time, um, of permission. Mm. This, this, this concept of permission. So Jesus hits the scene, and all of a sudden, um, this you know, rigid, rigid Jewish kind of structure opens up in new ways with the Spirit. You've got the inclusion of Gentiles. You've got this decentralization from the synagogue. You've got this missional movement. You've got all of this uh, permission yeah. going on, which creates a huge mess. I mean, if you just look exactly. at like the Corinthian church exactly. and then like Martin Luther, if you go back just to the one I'm more familiar with and all the permission that he gave to read the Bible, to interpret the Bible even, yeah. to not need the authority structure that was there before, there's permission. When I read your book, there's a lot of uh, permission, permission to ask, permission to challenge, permission to leave things behind, permission to, to use a quote from your book, to shovel away the distractions and rediscover the precious gift that has been too long been buried. I can't help but draw a parallel to all these reformers uh, 500 years ago, 500 years before that, all the way back to Christ. So this concept of permission seems really important. Why is it so important to give people permission and uh, in a healthy spirituality, in a healthy um, organizing religion, to use your phraseology, and is this permission dangerous? Yeah. Well, yeah, so there's a, another, boy, we could... <laughs> So uh, I, I'm just, I, I, I'm thinking uh, about a couple of different things that could be useful to bring up. Um, one of them is, uh, uh, there's a, a political theorist named George Lakoff. A lot of people have heard of him. And George tries to give a typology of the liberal mind and the conservative mind. Mm. And this is pretty useful to understand in today's political setting. George Lakoff says, the conservative mind is the strict father paradigm. And this, this narrative says, we're bad and lazy, and we need a strict father to make us do what we should do. And then he said, the liberal paradigm is the nurturing parent paradigm. We're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and we need a nurturing parent to guide us, mm. right? Um, and he thinks that these minds are formed in, I mean, they could be genetic. You know, we could have a genetic disposition toward one, or we could have early childhood experiences that tend us toward one or the other. Mm. Uh, I remember reading a, uh, or hearing a, a lecture some years ago about, it was about anxiety disorder in human beings. And, uh, panic disorder and so on. And the uh, fellow said they studied guppies, you know, the little fish? Oh, mm -hmm. sure. And they found out that if you have a group of 100 guppies and you scare them, 94 of them will run away, will go or swim away, and six of them will be brave and, and will be the last to run away. Not Maybe not brave or maybe oblivious, right? But, <laughs> but right. 94 of them will are, are, tend toward caution, right? And, um, and six of them tend toward 
less caution, right? If you take those 94, you'll find out that the slightest provocation, or if you take those 100, the slightest provocation, six of them will be the first to flee. In other words, that there are six that are abnormally uh, threat averse and six that are threat oblivious. Interesting. <laughs> and the, the guy said, biologically, you can see why if there are dangers, the threat averse ones are most likely to survive, right? Because mm -hmm. they'll, they'll go for cover and when other ones will get eaten mm -hmm. by a predator. But he said, well, then why aren't the six most uh, courageous, you know, uh, or, or less f fearful, why aren't they eliminated from the gene pool? He said, because they're the ones who mate most often. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, it's, you know, that little Not story, <laughs> yeah, a little story makes you see that diversity as part of a gene pool is a good thing, right? Sure. So um, you think... The, it's very possible that this is bred right into us. Mm -hmm. And some of us are oriented toward the strict father, others are oriented toward the nurturing parent. That's the first thing that, that might be useful in this. Uh, and it's the nurturing parent who gives permission because the nurturing parent says, it's a big world out there. Mm -hmm. I want you to grow up. I want you to explore. It's the strict father who says, it's a dangerous world out there. You do not get out of my sight, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so there we, we can see both of those. Sure. The second thing that comes to my mind is that I think in our current political and theological setting, it's not just conservative and liberal. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually, I would say it's progressive, conservative, and regressive. Yep. Mm. And in, I think Christians can see this more clearly by looking at Muslims. Uh, a lot of Christians are ignorant of Muslims because they only hear what the press says. Sure. The press is 500% more likely to... Uh, report on Muslim extreme, extremism than on Christian extremism. Um, and uh, so a, a lot of Christians don't know anything about Muslims. They think they do, but they know nothing. Um, but in Islam, you could say it like this, Muhammad, so the, the Quran comes into existence in the early 7th century, and it's encoded in the culture of the early 7th century. And Muslims are struggling to say, how do we deal with the 7th century? How can we be faithful to a 7th century document in the 21st century? Mm. And so they periodically stretch and become very, very progressive. A lot of Christians don't know that Muslims were more advanced than Christians in the, in, throughout much of our shared history. Really? They were far more humane, far more economically prosperous. They were a more prosperous civilization in many, many ways than Christian civilization in many places, in many parts. It's hard to make generalizations, but Christians would be surprised at how advanced Muslims were in many places. Um, but then it's like the elastic band stretches, and then they get, you know, snapped back to the seventh century. Wow. And Christians struggle with a similar problem. Mm -hmm. And we haven't come to terms with the degree to which, because our texts come from, let's say, you know, we have big arguments about this, but let's say roughly the, you know, 8th century BC to the 1st century AD, how far can we go from that culture to? And we're struggling with this, right? Mm -hmm. And if we aren't given, if Muslims aren't given permission to cut their ties to the 7th century, they're really going to have continued agony. And if we aren't given permission to cut our ties from those 
ancient cultural mm-hmm. roots, we're going to have periodic problems. So mm. the permission's important. Mm. That's good. And, and I think there's a simple way to do that. Uh, here's the way I say it. How do we honor our founders mm-hmm. by doing exactly what they did and saying exactly what they said or by understanding what they did in relation to their context so that we can follow the same wisdom in response to our context? See, Do we imitate their words or do we imitate their example? And that to me is the, is the great opportunity for us. Well, it's interesting that that's where the New Testament is all about the spirit in one way, it's, uh, you know, Jesus leaves the spirit, you know, he didn't say, here's a book I got, I wrote you guys, you know, or, this or here's, here's, you know, the flow chart or that, that'd have been nice, you know, or not, but it's the spirit. And, yeah, and in anyway. fact, he says, I have a whole lot of things to tell you. You aren't ready for them. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I mean, even that other verse that's uh, my friend, Doug Paget has a book coming out on this one verse that we don't know what to do with greater things you will do than I have done. Yeah. What does uh, that mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, so and, and Jesus is very big on, on not saying, you know, he, in the gospels, he heals somebody and doesn't say my faith has saved you. He mm-hmm. says your faith has healed you. Interesting. You know? And, and so he's very much on empowering and, uh, you know, and I think, but we in our religious subcultures, that makes us nervous. Mm-hmm. And, and so we've got to, Get comfortable with that. We are a covenant. So what you're trying to tell us is the story didn't end at the crucifixion. Hmm. <laughs> what a thought. It was it wasn't what over? Well, <clears throat> this leads me to my next question, which is how I know we're on a mission from God when, you, when the guest literally leads me into my next question. So thank you. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that, that we are um, really interested in, and we, we actually just finished a series on religious pluralism and had um, a wonderful uh, Muslim guest, Hindu guest, and uh, um, Jewish rabbi who, who came on just Good to kind you. of educate us. That's great. And we realized how, how dumb we were and how little we knew, <laughs> awesome. but it was, it was wonderful. Um, so my question is, <laughs> yeah, and, and they could not have been nicer to two guys who literally knew nothing about their respective religion. Oh. So they were very kind to us. Um, so being born and raised in kind of the traditions that, that Adam and I were, and I can only speak for us, but um, it, it, we, we were born and raised right before the age of the internet kind of kicked in. Yeah. Um, so you know, the folks that are younger, a little bit younger than us probably uh, wouldn't know, you know, what a phone with a cord looks like, much less, you know, life before the internet. But it seems to me that um, when the age of the internet kind of kicked in, it it kind of uh, took away our ability to kind of ignore, uh, it it kind of brought our neighbors closer together. Um, It it forced us to see the other religions, the other uh, people uh, throughout the world. And instead of being able to stay within our safe little Christian bubbles, so to speak, Mm -hmm. Um, along with that, uh, one of the questions I know that always comes up and that, you know, long nights of, of, of talking theology and drinking beer, you know, inevitably ends in this question. So what do we do with that? You know, we have this kind of chokehold on the truth, you know, like Jesus is the only way. So the other 39,000 denominations within Christianity, and of course, all the other religions are, are damned, you know, and that sort of thing. But 
But then we start to meet our neighbors and we meet these wonderful, beautiful people. And that becomes very problematic very quickly. So, and it also, it also starts to, to make you think that, that it kind of narrows the power of God, right? Mm-hmm. So is it, is, it, is it us? You know, as Richard Rohr said, one of the quotes that I love that he gives um, is this old Buddhist saying, you know, are we, are, we, are we just focusing on the finger pointing at the moon or are we, are we focusing on the moon? Mm-hmm. Well, what do we do with that? Well, you're asking a really uh, important life and death question that, um, you know, the, uh, the book I wrote addressing this general question was called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? And then the <laughs> yep. subtitle is Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. And people would say when they heard about the book, oh, I hear you wrote an interfaith book. And I want to say, actually, no, I wrote a Christian identity book. Um, because what does it mean to be a Christian in a world where you acknowledge not only the reality of other religions, but their right to exist? And, uh, and then you take it one step farther and you acknowledge, uh, you face the realities of history that we have often harmed them. And we have, they've been more in the position of Christ, and we've been more in the position of the crucifiers, right? They've been, we've harmed them in many cases. Um, and we've been harmed by them as well. This is, you know, we've got this complex history. But uh, uh, the first thing I would say is we have, we as Christians have a theological problem we have to resolve, and it's our basic narrative. And um, I even call it the six-line narrative. It's, it's this narrative that starts with creation, and then a fall, and then fallen history, and then salvation, heaven, and then there's sort of a trapdoor at the bottom to hell. And that is our, a lot of us inherited that, Catholic or Protestant, as the biblical narrative. And I remember I'd been a pastor for 20 years before I ever thought, if I were to read the Bible and nobody told me that that was a narrative, I never, ever would have discerned <laughs> exactly. that from the Bible. Sure. I never would have discerned that from the Bible. And I remember the first time I drew it on a napkin when I was talking to somebody, and I just thought, nobody would read the Bible and get this narrative. Um, and I thought, where did it come from? My theory is it comes from Greek philosophy and Roman politics, but that's another whole story. But I think one of the harmful ideas in this is that there was a perfect creation resulting in an ontological fall, that, and that God is of such a character that anything that's not perfect God has an irresistible urge to torture forever. I think that's faulty on so many levels, biblical, moral, and whatever else. But I think unless we deal with that, we're going to be, we're going to be patching up a leaky ship, I guess I would say it that way. And I'd like to use some worse metaphors than that. But, um, but I think we've got to deal with that in our own theology. And that's what I wrote about in that, in that book. Um, but on a more... And then I think second thing is we've got to come up with a better way of interpreting John 14, 6. And uh, do we have time for me to tell you a quick anecdote? Absolutely, yeah. Nothing but time. So I don't know if you all have ever heard of a a Muslim guy named Ibu Patel, but uh, Ibu's become a dear friend. And we were talking one time, and I said, Ibu, you Muslims are so better off than we are when it comes to multi-faith relationships. And he laughs. He says, nobody said that to me lately. What do you mean? I said, because every single Muslim I've ever talked to, this is true, I still haven't had an exception, every Muslim I've talked to, when we talk about multi-faith stuff, they quote a surah, I forgot, 46-something, um, from the Quran, a verse from the Quran, 
that says, we have made you different. We is sort of the royal we. God has made right. you different yeah. so that you would seek to understand one another. And I say, what a great verse. And whenever you ask a Christian about multi-faith relations, they quote John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And, I, and Ibu laughs. And he says, believe me, Brian, there are verses from the Quran that could be quoted that would be much less friendly than that one. <laughs> sure, and then, right. <laughs> and then he said, and there are verses from the Bible that could be quoted that would be much more friendly than that one. Absolutely. And then he said, here's the question. Why do Muslims quote that verse? And why do Christians quote that verse? That's a good question. And I said to him, because their teachers taught them to. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, this is our great problem. So I uh, have spent a lot of time with John 14, 6. And in fact, I've got a little ebook that I'm going to put out soon uh, that's like a 40-page serious interpretation of John 14, 6, because I think we need to get out. Of, we need to stop interpreting that the way we have. Mm. So I would say two things about that. First, what would happen if every time somebody said, what's your view of people of other religions? And you say, well, the Bible says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Um, you know, be a different world. If that were, of course, that's the verse we quote. The reason we don't quote it is nobody taught us to quote it. They taught us to quote John 14, 6, which has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with people of other religions. Absolutely nothing to do. I can say that with no doubt at all. Uh, uh, it has nothing to do in its context with people of the religion. So that's, we could talk about that. But what I would say is, I, I may be jumping to something more constructive. Here's what I would say. Uh, I don't believe it's the Christian's job to tell people of other religions, God hates you and you're going to hell and he'll torture you forever unless you join our religion. I don't think that's appropriate. Neither do I think it's appropriate to say all religions say the same thing because mm. that is just a lie. Mm -hmm. They don't say the same thing. Here's a way to say it. They don't say the same thing about the same thing. They don't say different things about the same thing. Mm. They say different things about different things. Wow. <laughs> um, here's a way to say it. It's not that, like I, I, I was taught this in evangelism training. Christianity is the only religion that teaches it's all been done. All other religions teach what you have to do. to. Mm -hmm. to you know what? That's just stupid. The only person <laughs> who'd say that knows nothing about other religions. Um, Buddhism does not even believe in God. It's not, you know, right. many, many forms of Buddhism do not believe in God. They're not trying to tell you what you have to do to reach God, right? It's just crazy, you know? Uh, uh, Buddhism is, in fact, there are so many, there are as many different forms of Buddhism as there are of Christianity. And the difference between one form of Buddhism and another is the difference between a Quaker and a Greek Orthodox. You know, it, yeah. there are huge differences. Um, so I like what John Cobb, the Methodist theologian, who has spent his life deeply knowing Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, he says, religions are incommensurable. They're, they're talking about different things. They're different research projects. And in that way, then, they, we, we owe it to understand what they're trying to achieve, what their project is. 
And then I think what we can do is, here's where, if I could circle back around Please. to that stage of harmony, that fourth stage. Mm -hmm. If you have, well, let's say it this way. If you have a Buddhist, a Muslim, and a Christian in stage one, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're going to judge each other from their own perspective because they've never been able to understand that their perspective is limited, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have people in stage two, they're all going to uh, want to explain all the complexities of their religion and make sure their, their counterparts understand the complexities of their religion, and they'll argue about you know whatever they can, but it'll be very scholarly and intense and interesting. And then if you're in stage three, it's very interesting because then you have people who are each disillusioned with their own religion and they have amazing amount in common because they're all frustrated and angry. <laughs> and very often they're glad to find each other because yes. like they've all suffered in the same way yes. at the hands of what they feel is oppressive in their own religion. And then you get to stage four and you can imagine they encounter one another in different ways. And here's the way I see that going. They say, I have treasures in my religion that your religion does not have. I have treasures in my tradition. There are treasures in my founder that you do not have. And there are treasures you have that I do not have. And I, I am eager to share with you the gifts that I've received. And if you have gifts you want to offer me, I do not want to force my gifts on you because something that's forced is not a gift. Uh, it's colonization. Mm. And I do not want to be forced by you. I don't want to be threatened by you. But if you have gifts you want to offer me, I think there's enormous possibility for that. And here's the thing. As, Christ, as a Christian, I actually believe the gifts that come to the world in Jesus Christ, the whole world will be better off receiving, including Christianity, <laughs> which it largely has not received Amen those that. gifts. Yeah. questions we have time for a couple more sure yeah so um the end of your book was probably one of my i mean i was just jamming on this last night man i was really loving appendix three where you talk about beliefs mm. and um the authors that you referenced uh clayton and knapp which i'm gonna quickly go out and, and order whatever they're writing on because it really sounds like it's tapping into something very very important uh, one of the things that john and i noticed um when we first started talking and then we launched this project and all these kinds of things is that it seems like where we get are you know, tied up in knots um, as Western Christians is in the articulation, the specific articulation of conceptual beliefs. Um, and you talk in this uh, appendix about how there's all different kinds of beliefs and that belief itself is even a very, very tricky thing when you really start talking about it. When you really start talking about what belief is, it's actually a very, very tricky thing to nail down. And if you asked a whole bunch of different people what they meant when they said belief, you'd get a whole lot of different answers, which is problematic in and of itself. So beliefs are tricky. There's all different kinds of beliefs. Um, and Clayton and Knapp talk about some of these different things. So you talk about, can the Christianity of the future convene around something other than just a list of conceptual beliefs? And I think this is in large a lot of what you talk about. Um, so could you talk about your answer to that question and the four leg, uh, the table with four legs a little bit? Cause I just think that there's a lot of resources in there to bring us all together. Yeah. 
Well, first, I'm really happy because nobody has ever asked me a question about that appendix. It's fantastic. And I really feel good. And I worked really hard on oh, it. Oh, it's so, so good. Uh, as far as I know, you're the first person to have read it. So I absolutely <laughs> love Appendix incredible. 3. It's, it's my favorite. Oh, thanks. It should have gotten its own chapter name. That's, That's right. Great. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the... Uh, Clayton and Knapp's book is called, I think it's called The Predicament of Belief. I yeah. think that's the title. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 highly, I highly recommend it. Uh, so here's the thing that, I, 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 a quick uh, anecdote. I was in a long bus ride with a rabbi once, and uh, we were heading to this retreat together. And she, I, she was asking me about this book, and I was talking to her about this. And she says, you know, you Christians have never made sense to me uh, about this. She says, you're so obsessed with beliefs. You know, we Jews, we don't really care about our beliefs except as something to argue about. <laughs> We're united by something else. Yes. And I just remember, I went, bling, you know, like, like I think for Christians, it's hard for us. We're, we've got, you know, several centuries, a millennia and a half, not 2,000 years, because it's very clear for the first couple of centuries, an articulation of beliefs was not at the core. And and I'm not against the creeds. I am against a misunderstanding and misapplication of the creeds, in my mm. opinion, and absolutizing the creeds. But if you say the creeds are are what are sort of like walls that Christians erected because they were in the process of being assimilated into something else, and they had to put up some stakes or some things to say we don't want to be assimilated into Middle Platonic philosophy. That's really good. And and so here's how we're going to articulate this, without realizing uh, later. Christians then never realized we better do what our found what our ancestors did rather than just say what they said. Mm-hmm. Because then when Christians are in danger of being sucked into Roman militarism, they were oblivious because they were only focused on not being sucked into middle platonic beliefs or whatever. See, so this danger of being assimilated into mm-hmm. something or, you know, becoming sort of experiencing a hostile takeover is a real danger. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I try to imagine what is it that could uh, help us, um, I, I think, first of all, a recentering on Jesus and Jesus' message of the kingdom of God is a pretty compelling thing for Christians. His gospel was not information on how to solve the problem of original sin. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a category in Jesus' mind. We can say that categorically. It was not a category of Jesus' mind. It was a category that didn't even enter human consciousness until a few centuries later, right? So Jesus has this message of the kingdom of God. Be nice if we really sought to understand that, really let that be seen. Yeah, that's good. I think we need human beings. This is the great insight of the Middle Ages when authorities were, you know, it wasn't weapons, it was people who mm-hmm. held authority. Well, we need people. So my advocacy is for what I call saints and elders. Um, saints being um, the, the moral leaders from the past. Now, one of our problems is that in our history, the people who are often officially sanctioned as saints or unofficially by Protestants are theologians who defended a belief system. Absolutely. And often they were ugly people. Like, for example, I'm, I'm a big fan of what Martin Luther did. Mm-hmm. But Martin Luther was an anti-Semite. Dude, he was, was nuts. He was a vicious <laughs> yeah. anti-Semite. Yeah. He was way better reformer than he was. He was way better at attacking someone else's abuse of power 
than he was of his own use of power, right? Wasn't right. Nice. <laughs> Especially so, towards the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I personally wouldn't ever make Martin Luther one of my saints. No. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but you think, well, what would happen? Well, I, I may, maybe my favorite example, because they lived close to the same time, is Thomas Aquinas is seen as a great saint for his intellectual endeavors, which I, I think are fascinating, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Um, St. Francis was a saint on a different level. Yes. I'd be happy to call Aquinas a scholar of the church, but I really would much rather talk about Francis, right? I like that distinction. Um, uh, and one of my beliefs is that you should never call a, someone a saint who is violent. Uh, violence disqualifies you as a saint. That's good. And um, so identify those saints. Then I would say... Elders are people who are alive, who've lived long enough to earn our respect for their moral, not perfection, but their moral integrity right? mm. um, and an example and leadership in the ways of Christ. So I think we need human beings. I also would add to that, I, this wasn't in the book, but I would also add to that rising stars. Now you have to hold them on a different level, but we need young leaders who we hold up to. Um, uh, Jesus was 30. What we now call Christianity started as a youth movement. And I think we have to shift our emphasis to looking at younger voices like you guys, you know, who have the courage to speak out and are leading in some good directions. So I think we have a huge amount of work to do to refocus on young leaders. So that would be um, another leg. Who's a youth pastor? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, what I call him is a youth, I call him a youth movement leader. A youth movement leader. Yeah. Wow. The, the it really brings youth are, for Christ a whole new meaning. He had 12 guys, yeah, too. Uh, <laughs> And, and, you know, but really, it, it's hard to imagine a lot of older people being that excited about following an itinerant 30-year-old around the, the land, you know. So we don't know the details of their ages, but it, at any rate, I, I jokingly say, a lot of pe- Presbyterians don't know, and Calvinists don't know, that John Calvin was 19 when he wrote Institutes of the Christian Religion. Whoa. And uh, he, he started it at 19, finished it at 23 or 24, something like that. And I jokingly say Presbyterians have never listened to a 25-year-old since. But, <laughs> but you know what's interesting? The United Presbyterian Denomination, every one of their general assemblies the last few years, I think this is still true, has elected to their you know, leadership council a younger person than history. In other words, they keep breaking the record at going young, which to me That's is fantastic. admirable. Yeah. It's really admirable. That's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, at any rate, uh, I, do you have the other? Uh, I'm, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, right here. So good. Sorry, I, I don't have a copy of my own book uh, <laughs> to refer to. So yeah, you, saints and then practice and the vision of the future. So the practice leg is that we offer people things to do. This is, you know, yoga has had an explosive expanse. It's really incredible. Um, because yoga is a practice. And any practice makes promises and it either delivers or it doesn't deliver. So, you know... Every few years, there's a new ab machine, right? An ab exercise, exercise apparatus. And they, they make a promise, and then they almost always fade away. With a shake weight. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Uh, remember those electric ones that would, yeah. 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 Uh, they, and, of course, they sometimes make a recovery to be discredited once again. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't know what our practices are for. Mm. So we don't even make any promises about it. But I think there are Christian practices that we could make promises about. 
so that if people would try them and they actually work. I think that's key. Yeah, a couple examples. So um, I think this is one of the reasons why there's a resurgence of contemplative practices. Yes. Because you can make some promises. You learn how to uh, sit in silence practicing contemplation and something changes in your brain. Couldn't agree more. It's a promise you can make that can be validated, right? Um, I personally think we don't know about our practices of love that are great treasures, but I think we can tell people, you serve others. You take an act of humble service for others. Um, that's one of our practices, and you will be changed mm -hmm. by the act of service. Can't argue with that. Uh, and, and a lot of people experience that. You know, one of the amazing things that's happening to churches is they go on mission trips. Look, a lot of mission trips don't help the people they go to mm -hmm. uh, as much as anybody thinks. Some may even do some harm. But a promise you can make is you bring people out of their comfort zone to serve people who they, who their politicians are telling them to judge and condemn, and you serve them in love, and you're changed. You know, so that's wow. what I mean by that's practices great. that that's great that make promises. And then the vision of the future. And the vision of the future is important because. I think this is something Christianity is very conflicted about. And I think we, in a sense, we have to provide a vision of the future. I, I call it a participatory vision. This is a vision of the future that says, if we participate, this kind of a world is possible. Mm. And it's not only possible, it's present mm. in certain places. You can see it uh, being embodied and it's possible for that to spread, right? So that vision of the future, I think, is helpful. And then to me, if you think about those four legs and you let those bring meaning to the Eucharist, which has been our gathering table, it has a whole new uh, dimension. So. That's so good. Well, I guess one last question because we're, we're uh, running out of time here. One of the biggest questions that we get, um, I think, pretty frequently uh, from people all over the country, all over the world at this point, um, how can I find community uh, to engage in? And it's one of the hardest things for us to answer. We need somebody to create an app or something that, yeah. that connects people together. But are, are people able to, to find a church, even if they don't align perfectly, as if that's even possible? But are they able to still receive something from that experience? Can they still connect with the church you know, in their community, even though they may, they may not uh, agree on all things? So you guys are, what a million-dollar question people are asking you. Uh, I'm asking that question, too. And... Um, it's one of the reasons I'm involved with this organization called Convergence. And we're trying to figure that out because we think there's a way that churches could identify themselves. Because here's the problem. You can't say, oh, the Episcopal Church will make this work for you. Or you can't say, oh, this or that. You know, there's no label you can put on. Right. Um, but interestingly, there are Episcopal congregations where that really can work. And there are, people would be surprised, there are Baptist congregations where that really can work. Now, there are certain strains of Baptists that if you are that kind of congregation, you will soon be kicked out. <laughs> uh, it's true. Yeah. But, but, you know, and there are non-denominational congregations where that's true. And yep. all across the board, right? And I think there's a way for us to help the people find them. Um, and the, the app, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you quick, uh, uh, a little quick step. We've been talking about this in this convergence network for quite a while. And when, after Trump was elected, I think it was when he announced the Muslim ban, right? Um, uh, we just said, if your church is working against this, you know, if your church is ready to stand up and be counted, you're not. 
And I think we had 400 churches right away. Oh, wow. Say, we're in. Well, it was an interesting way to find people. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and so uh, I think there are ways that we can help these churches find each other. But I think we're in this really weird moment where people are sorting out what kind of church they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yes, Lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably my s- signal to shut up. But I, I just have to tell you, Tony Campolo uh, yeah. told me this story. And uh, he, he was with a group of people who went to Cuba, and they actually had a meeting with Castro. Wow. And uh, Castro said, and I can totally picture Castro saying this, but you've got to picture Tony imitating Castro saying this. <laughs> Castro said, I'm the greatest friend the church has ever had, which sounds like something Trump would say. And it sounds like your typical dictator would say, you know, I'm the greatest friend. And then he said, when Jesus said, the wolf comes and the hireling scatters, I am the wolf. (laughs) And when I came to power, all the hirelings left, leaving only true shepherds of the sheep. Wow. Whoa. Now, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. Amazing. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that. That anybody who wanted an easy life got the heck out of Cuba when he came to power. And so the people who stay and work and serve under a hostile regime, Mm. uh, there's something he said. Well, I think this is one of the gifts of what's going on. We have a resurgence of racism in our country. Mm. And it's an ugly resurgence of what I call white Christian nationalism. Yeah. Many churches will be its chaplains. And I hope people who are part of those churches will leave those churches. I hope they'll go and plead with their pastor to not go in that direction. But it's a foregone conclusion for a lot of them. I hope people will leave those churches. You should not support a racist operation, even if its racism is covered in politeness and worship songs, right? Um, every church of predominantly white people has to accept the responsibilities of white privilege to seek to dismantle them, right? So, I mean, we got this, we've got an ecological crisis. Every church that does not engage itself in trying to heal the world in a very short window that we have before a climate catastrophe, Mm -hmm. um, every church that just carries on business as usual without addressing the crisis of the climate, I hope people will leave those churches. Mm-hmm. I, just, I hate to say it, but why waste your time and money if, if, you know, if we're missing the moment there? Mm. We got an incredible crisis of wealth being transferred from the poor to the rich. I mean, this is real, and it's global. It, it's like global capitalism has a serious flaw, and until it's fixed, we've got work to do to try to stand against this transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. Man, Jesus has so much to say. The Bible has so much to say about poverty. Um, We've got people inciting war and holding up militarism. It makes my skin crawl every time people quote, no greater love has a man that will give up his life for his friends, you know, to praise another military intervention. Because Jesus did not say that, saying, join my army and be willing to die in the pursuit of killing other people. It's not what he said. And uh, so we've got this, these huge challenges. And yeah. I think this is like Castro. It's going to force shepherds to decide what kind of shepherd they want to be. And there will be Episcopal and Methodist and UCC and Presbyterian and Baptist and all and non-denominational. 
kinds of churches, and they are going to find that uh, in spite of their different pasts, they have the same present and future to respond to. And when they do, I hope they keep their different denominational labels, but I hope they find a way to work together. I hope people can find a way to find them. Beautiful. <laughs> no better way to end. Um, where can people follow your work? And uh... Uh, BrianMcLaren.net is my website, and then you can find links to my Facebook and Twitter and so on. Well, The Great Spiritual Migration is out now. Go get a copy anywhere the good books are sold, and we'll have links in the show notes for sure. So thank you so much for, uh, for taking so the much. time out. And, and thanks to Pastor Vern Shepard and yeah, uh, for United Methodist Church here at Lakeside Chautauqua. Yeah, and I want to thank you guys. Loved being with you. Loved talking with you. Incredibly good questions. Keep up the good work. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much, Ryan. It was a pleasure. So much here. I mean, we could have made this two episodes. Oh, easily. And I didn't thought about doing that. But mm-hmm. a couple quick highlights from, from what I know I'm constantly struggling with. And I say that in a healthy way. I don't mean that's like, gosh, I wish I was done struggling with this. Like, I love, yeah. I love the struggle. Hashtag mm-hmm. love the struggle. Um, his insights into, let's, let's start like 100,000 feet. Like, What's going on in this movement? Just the discomfort. He, I remember reading this book and he uses the word spiritual claustrophobia, which, which is like, I mean, that is what you and I initially started talking about before we'd ever read this stuff. Before yeah. We were just talking about spiritual claustrophobia. So this guy's dialed in from a very, very big level mm-hmm. down to like a lot of the particulars. So like, you know, when, do you remember when we were talking with him about like um, different ways to interpret the Bible? Yes. And the whole spectrum. Yes. And like he actually, it's not even a spectrum. He has like a grid. Yeah. And how helpful is that? You can literally buy this book, take a look at yourself and go, kind of where do I land here? And like, how have I evolved? And where might I go? And how, you know, how do some of these, you know, things relate to me? And as far as like, you know, from a literal to a literary reading of the Bible, um, from like a, you know, uh, an innocent to a critical reading of the Bible. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, there is so much good language here. Mm-hmm. And again, all language does is give us some scaffolding on which we can actually move around this big mystery that we're all taking yeah. no part of. So it's not like this just blob of jelly. Yeah. Which is, it, it, which is interesting because I've been digging more into Derrida lately. Like you and I are getting ready to do uh, uh, an episode here that will probably have already aired at this point. Yeah, but probably. Whatever. Who knows? We'll uh, get to it. Doesn't matter. We're nonlinear. <laughs> That's right. Very nonlinear. <laughs> We're very nonlinear. <laughs> just in general, in life. Because people are probably like, they sort of tweaked their name, but never explained why. Right. <laughs> We're a mystery. Look, we're a mystery, and we're very busy <laughs> yes. human beings. Uh, so maybe that episode will uh, aired by this point, but you you never know, <laughs> or you will know because it'll have aired by now. Who knows? There you go. But uh, Derrida, yeah, I've been digging more into uh, digging back into Derrida and like specifically like his literary criticisms and how language um, is like a tricky thing, especially Super when it comes tricky. to written. Yeah, written language. You know, you have to. 
it's basically like a, what is he called an interpretation of an inter- of someone's interpretation yeah so like you have to filter through all of these different levels like you know uh through history mm-hmm. uh through like the context of the history in which it was written and then you have to like interpret the writer's interpretation of what they're the account they're writing about are you tired yet yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just think about that for a second. And then, That's a great point, man. Consider that he wrote like hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of pages on this topic. And I think that's why uh, so many of the things from our episode regarding specifically scripture, if we're talking about like language and written language and, you know, things like that, um, from all the way back when we did like a deconstructing the Bible series and we had, you know, Tim Mackey on, who is freaking awesome. Yeah. New uh, podcast. What is it called? Oh, it's called Exploring My Strange Bible and uh, everybody. Uh, it's so good. Man, I love. I just love it because I love hearing things from all these different perspectives as I as I get to play around on this great journey. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that you know we were talking about with Brian that goes back to what you're just saying with Derrida is just this interpretation is tricky. Yeah, it's really tricky when somebody writes something down. They're experiencing a truth and they're trying to put language to it, which is an interpretation of the truth. And then you've got to come along and assume that your interpretation of their interpretation is right on. Yeah. That's the game we're all playing here. Right. And, and the cool part about Brian McLaren is he just at least suggests that he's like, just listen, if somebody is giving you facts and they're, they're trying to give you, fa- like, this is a fact, this is a fact, this is a fact, be very careful. Right. Because they're sneaking a narrative of meaning in there. Yes. They're telling you also about meaning. And if you're not careful to understand and decipher and interpret and you know, discern the, the meaning that's coming along embedded in those quote-unquote facts, you're being fed a story, which isn't maybe necessarily a bad thing unless you're completely unaware of that, the fact that it's happening at all. Yeah. Because it's formulating thoughts. It's formulating identity. It's formulating positions that you will eventually start to take action on. Dude, in the worst argument I ever hear uh, against that, the, the, the worst counter argument I've, I've ever heard is that, well, like the Bible is so inspired that like God would made it so easy for everyone to read that like the, the, uh, the answers are obvious in it. Well, if that's the case, we wouldn't be arguing about it, would we? <laughs> like, Don't tell any Bible scholar ever on yeah. any end of the spectrum that that would be the most insulting thing you could possibly yeah, say your whole life is a complete waste of time yeah we don't need scholarship yeah like if if god truly made this thing uh like magical in the sense that we can all immediately read the same passage and derive the same meaning from it then there would be no argument no we, none of us would be arguing right now no we would all have see the same thing and land on the same you know be like, hey, my six my six year old son can read Dr. Seuss books. I'm just going to pull scripture out, yeah, and have him just read some words, and he'll get the meaning. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it's like, oh, come on, oh Lord. But yeah, so so much here, and I, and I hope that for those of you that listen to this, um, you know, I'm guessing a lot of you are familiar with Brian McLaren's work. Um, depending on where you've been and and where you've kind of progressed along in your spiritual journey. That probably, he, he's not exactly a guy that, that people are just kind of neutral on. And I hope that you were able to take away from this his spirit and his voice and how he is trying to help. Yeah. You know, no matter what you agree, disagree, like whatever. Like that's why we do this. Mm-hmm. But um, hopefully you found it inspiring and, and uh, thought-provoking. Yep. 
And uh, there's so many things we could get into, but it's already been such a long episode <laughs> that I think that uh, it'd be best if uh, you just have a conversation with somebody yourself or yeah, sign on to Patreon. Yes. And <laughs> pledge you know, a certain amount and we'll have a conversation with you. Yeah, that's one of the packages <laughs> as well as uh, for those of you that, that really want to throw down and be a part of this, we have uh, rare, I don't know how to put it even, like episodes that are not a part of this podcast. We are actually... Secret, secret episodes. Yes. Adam and I are secretly curating a new separate podcast from the Deconstructionist podcast where it'll just be Adam and I discussing ideas that can be suggested by you so you guys can help us produce essentially uh episodes that you will get your hands on well in advance of of the general public and it's an as yet to be named podcast we haven't even started writing for it yet but um that's a cool thing that you guys can get your hands on um as well as a bunch of other things so but we got a lot of juice fermenting yes that we are excited to get out in uh, recorded form just to inspire more conversations and connect with you guys more. So get on our website, check out our Patreon, uh, buy Brian's book by all means if you want some good, vigorous, intellectual, and spiritual exercise. One thing you'll find in this book, let me just give it a quick plug, endless footnotes for more resources to explore from all over the spectrum You'll probably be surprised at the different, the different kinds of thoughts and people and influences that he pulls in to what he's doing here. And there are discussion questions that get you really just going on some of the ideas that he wants you to think about. Um, but again, I, I just think it's beautiful stuff and I'm happy we, we got to spend some time with him. And, you know, Brian, if you by chance listen to this, we hope you're doing well and thank you. Yeah. And for now... We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. We love you guys.
If you wanna get next to me